Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest on this Currents episode is Tyson Yunkaporta. How you going, Jim? No howdy today. Usually like, howdy. Howdy! That's, I think that's on the pre-roll, the, the howdy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I picked that up when I was living in Idaho, out in uh, actually sheep herder country, and all the local yeah. people said howdy, and I picked it up and have used it ever yeah. since. And when I lived in Boston, people looked at me like I was the man from the moon when I said howdy. But hey, that's the way it goes. Howdy, Tyson. Howdy. Tyson's an academic, an arts critic, and a researcher who is a member of the Appalach clan in far northern Queensland. He carves traditional indigenous tools and weapons out of wood, mostly, and also works as a senior lecturer in indigenous knowledges at Deakin University in Melbourne. And he lives in Melbourne, at least most of the time. Tyson's been on the show twice previously, where we have dug into his remarkable new book, Sand Talk. And as always, we'll have a link to Sand Talk on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. If you care about the future of humanity, read this book. In fact, Jim Rutt says, read Sand Talk or I'll kick your ass. How about that for a blurb? That's, that's an endorsement. That's going on the cover of the next edition, that one. I'm going to tell you, you know, send that, send that one to your publisher and say that, that uh, in the next printing, uh, that's got to be on the, on the back cover. Yeah. Now, seriously, people, this is not only a must-read book for anybody that cares about the future of humanity, but it's also a great work of art. Yeah, I'm serious about this. It is not linear. It's not a list of the 13 things you can do to save the planet. It's a beautiful weaving of uh, Tyson's personal story, the story of the people of Australia, the people of the world, the craziness of the world, complexity, indigenous knowledge, all woven together into an astounding tapestry. If you read one book this year, read Sand Talk. But now let's get into the topic of today. Uh, since I read the book and had those two wonderful conversations with Tyson, uh, one idea from the book in particular has just pulled at me, and I just keeps pulling me back and making me look at it again and again. So I reached out to uh, Tyson and said, let's just talk about this one topic, and that's a topic uh, which he calls humans as the custodial species of the earth. So what, did you, what do you mean by that? Well, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's just a foundational understanding in, in most of our um, Aboriginal cultures and Torres Strait Islander cultures in Australia. And, uh, yeah, it's most of our, um, our creation stories, you know, culminate in, in uh, human beings being given this role, of uh, humans being passed this knowledge and this law from um, our creator entities of how to be in the world and what your role is. And how you're maintaining uh, this uh, sort of custodial relation uh, with all of creation? Yeah, of course. The Christians, uh, you know, Christian canon also has that. You know, when uh, when they kick Adam and Eve out of uh, 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 Garden of Eden, you know, good old Yahweh says, "And you will have dominion over everybody." And it's you know, kind of uh, ugly, frankly. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I like that model of a custodial species. Do uh, you have a better one? Yeah, well, the the dominion's a different thing. I mean, even the word custodial is is about as close as you can get in English to it. It's just, um, you know, it, it brings to mind ideas of custody, um, you know, like you're holding, capturing, trapping this nature, you know, and that's not quite the idea. But most people have an idea of what custodianship is, and it's you know, it's a bit of a light hand. And something that has to be, you know, deeply considered, and sort of has to be governed by um, sort of more natural natural law than anything else. 
And what is it you think that allows or permits or demands, maybe is a better word, that humans be that custodial species? Could it be, you know, again, I do a lot of work in cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience, and there does sure sure seem to be a pretty bright line between the uh, mental and reasoning capabilities of Homo sapiens and all the other species. You know, we're the only one that has... Uh, what we call general intelligence. You know, given enough time and enough paper, we can figure out almost anything. Mm. Uh, and that's very different than uh, the other animals. Is that what uh, makes us uh, the ones who are the custodians, or is there something well, else about humans? If you look at um, most of the other beings in the system, you know, in, in a complex dynamic system, um, they're largely concerned with their niche and the relation of that niche to uh, to to all you know to the other things around it. You know, um, you know, with the exception of some things like you know mycelium and all that sort of thing, which tends to be a big sort of uh, underground almost internet. You know, that goes through the entire system and you know communicates things in real time right across, say, a forest or whatever. So, I mean, but, you know, mycelia, they don't have opposable thumbs, you know? <laughs> yeah, and they don't have symbolic reasoning and they don't have, uh, you know, discrete memory. They do have a chemical memory, which yeah. is interesting. Mycelium are very, very interesting. But they, really uh, but they, yeah, they, they don't have a uh, they lack a lot in the ability to generalize and look at the really big picture and. Uh, and also to uh, work in to even understand the idea of depth of time. You know, mm. I was looking at my dog the other day, and he's a pretty damn smart dog as dogs go. Uh, but he, you know, has definite limitations. For instance, in this uh, uh, place we're renting in Pittsburgh for uh, uh, a few weeks here, waiting for a grandchild to show up. Uh, I walk, we walked the dog around the block and he has not yet figured out that the, uh, we go out the back door and through the alley and then around the city block. He hasn't figured out yet that the front door and the back door are somehow related, but, but, you know, humans yeah. have the capability to do that very easily. A four-year-old figures that out in one day. Yeah. And well, I guess they're, um, they're specialists, aren't they? Uh, a lot of animals are, are kind of specialists, whereas we're, we're more generalists. But so anyway, there's clearly a difference in our capability. And so, hey, we, you know, we're the ones who are the only ones that really can be responsible. Well, we can, we can see like our minds are are such that we're we're able to perceive um, the entire system. You know, if we really do put our minds to work the way they were designed to be, um, we, we can perceive an entire complex system, but we can also perceive the systems beyond that system and the way they interact. You know, so I guess it's that unique uh, capacity that that you know the you know we would say we've been given by the sort of hero ancestors and the you know the creation entities. Um, it, we've been given those gifts, you know, particularly so that we can be that custodial species. You know, so there's a there's a dreaming story in Western Australia. They you know they talk about there was a big meeting. You know, everything, all the trees, the plants, the animals, and, you know, humans were in there where they were sitting down at that moment of creation um, to decide who who the carers for everything were going to be. So that's the language they use now. They, they, they call it the carers of everything. Um, so who was going to care for all of this and oversee it? And, you know, it went through each of the traits of, of each animal and the trees were like, well, we can't move around and... You know, and the kangaroo came really close, apparently, but um, he just had these shitty little arms, you know, (laughs) 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 and they weren't quite going to do it. Um, So, yeah, it ended up being the human beings, um, you know, who had that capacity and the hands are really important. You know, they they have a really big significance, um, spiritual significance in our cultures, the hands and for human beings all around the well, that's what you see on the cave walls, you know, and that rock art yep. is always hanging. Yeah, it goes all over the world. I've seen yeah. them. I've seen where they, people put their hands against the wall, and then apparently they would take uh, paint, put it in their mouth, and spit it out to produce mm. those patterns. That was a common way they would do it. You know, our hands are, you know, remarkable, and of course they, you know, they're the things that allow us to have that haptic cognition, 
you know, where a tool becomes recognized in our brain as an extension of our arm. You know, they're the way we, um, you know, interact with the world. Yeah, and also tools. Uh, I, and I've worked with other people on a, on a, uh, a theory of linguistics. It may not be true, but it's possible that it is, which is that we learned how to make multi-part tools before we developed syntactical language. And it, turn, and it turns out, based on our analysis, that tool making is in many ways similar to syntactic language in that it's not rigid. You can make the parts in a different order, but you have to put them together in the same way to have the tool. So it has both the uh, kind of requirement and freedom of language. And, and we, that may well have been that the mental capacity for building tools is what we were able to leverage into our even more powerful uh, tool of language. Mm. And potentially the language may have developed out of need to sing. Um, it's just a, it's an interesting little thing to think about, you know, because um, you often see like when you're your grandchild is born there, you know, and you watch you watch them grow. Um, you you see, kids are always like they're singing before they can speak. They're yep. trying to sing. You know, it's like one of the first things we try and do. Um, you know, the same way they try and run <laughs> before they can even stand up. Um, so, I, and I think the singing is important because that's part of your. That's how you um, you encode all those relations of, of being the custodial species is is through uh ceremonies um you know and you sing all those stories but you sing um like i, I mentioned to you before about the increase ceremonies and the increase ceremonies are about um not increasing the size of the system that you're a custodian of but increasing the um combinatorials within the system so you're increasing yeah, the, i love that increasing the connections between things you know so and you actually sing those connections you sing them into being. And you taught this from a really young age. So I was talking to a Samoan, Samoan fellow yesterday, and he was talking about um, that there's this concept they have, um, like their word for warm data, I guess you'd call it, is, is uh, I think it's va, is what he said. And um, it's, it's an actual thing. It's a force, an energy, it's a substance. But it is the um, it's the thing that exists between things in the relation between things, and he was telling telling me about the five stages that you go through in coming to increased knowledge of of that um, that Samoan warm data thing, and and it's uh, the first one is when you're very young, when you're just starting to stand, um, and right the way through when you're a toddler and you're a young kid, your mother will take you and put you. Um, there on the beach and get you to pay attention to your feet on the sand and that va between your feet and the sand that um that uh, relation between them but right at the edge of the water so then the waves come up and wash over your your feet and so then you're seeing the connection between those three things you know that that relation that you have and that's the earliest you know simplest form of that um, and so all of your all of your cultural expression, um, all of your ceremony, ritual, and just the day you live, the way you live from day to day, it's all about um, working with those, working with that in between, you know, which is just as real as as the things themselves, you know, the connections between things. Yeah, it's very real. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and, and, and indeed, that's you know part of the modern thinking of complexity, which you and I both uh, uh, enjoy studying, as I often will say as a shorthand to help people understand the idea of complexity, uh, it, you know, older science, uh, reductionist science can be thought of as the study of the dancers, mm -hmm. while complexity can be thought of the study of the dance, right? The interrelationship between the dancers, right? And then the dance is as real. In fact, I would argue in some sense more real than the dance, yeah. right? Than the dancers. I mean, what is life but a dance of chemicals, right? Uh, you know, what is a society but a dance of people and stuff, 
Uh, and so the, the relationships and the dynamics uh, are, to my mind, critical, which actually brings me to the first quote I'm going to read from your book, which I'd love to get oh. your comment. It's a perfect time for it. Uh, oh, by the way, just to show you how central custodial species is to your book, I uh, use my little tool I have, and I discovered that uh, custodial species appears 12 times in your book. Oh. So it, it is actually a very important concept. I found that authors don't often know those kinds of things. Isn't that interesting, mm. right? Uh, anyway, here's uh, Tyson on uh, one of his earlier, not the first, uh, writings in the book on custodial species. The, the book, by the way, is Sand Talk. Read it or I'll kick your ass. Uh, here we go. Creation is in a constant state of motion, and we must move with it as the custodial species, or we will damage the system and doom ourselves. Nothing can be held, accumulated, stored. Every unit requires velocity and exchange in a stable system, or it will stagnate. This applies to economic and social systems as well as natural ones. That's it. Isn't that good? Yeah, it's 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 that accumulation of thing. You know, when when you, if you do you have that game in the states, pass the parcel? No. It's where the, there's like a. Okay, we in Australia. There's this thing, and they, I think they do it in the UK too. At a birthday party or whatever, there's like a little present, like a gift, but it's got you know about twenty layers of wrapping around it, and all the kids sit in a circle, and they have to pass the parcel, and they take off one one layer at a time, until finally the one who unwraps the gift they get to keep the gift, right? And you see it; they usually have music playing, and they're doing it really fast, and everyone's really excited. But there's always that one fucking kid, you know. <laughs> when he gets the parcel, he just holds it. He gets there and holds it and everyone's getting really uncomfortable and everyone's trying to get him to pass it on. He won't pass it on. And there's just always that prick, you know, <laughs> in this, you know. Yeah, he's a game. He's a gamester. He figures he out the game. He figures out. He's the game A motherfucker, as we'd call him. Right? game A. Ah. <laughs> Hey, I just, um, I was thinking the other day, I was saying you should get game B hats. And then, um, I had no, I popped into my head that, um, you know, those MAGA hats. Yeah. Yeah. That Ma MAGA is almost an anagram of, um, game A. <laughs> <laughs> it is surprisingly similar. Yeah. It's kind of a, you know, degenerate version of game A for fucking idiots. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Fortunately, the idiot players of game A are less dangerous than the smart players of game yeah. A. Right. <laughs> well, it's that, um, that's one of the principles, you know, is, is interaction. You know, all the nodes yeah. in that system, there has to be this constant dynamic interaction. You know, it's, it's resources, materials, matter, information particularly. You know, it, it has to... It's all information, really, right? Yeah. You don't have one node that's like collecting all that information for itself and holding it, you know, storing it or, or that energy. You know, it's the same with money. Exactly. Money. You know, this actually just caused the thought to jump into my head. People who listen to the show know that I'm generally speaking a skeptic of Bitcoin and uh, other similar kinds of cryptocurrencies. And as it turns out, uh, if you look at uh, those money systems quantitatively, you find that there's almost no velocity in them. People never use them to buy anything, yeah. right? Uh, it's basically speculators, hoarders, people sitting on nest eggs, uh, and there's no life to it. There's no velocity in exchange, mm. right? And uh, while I can, in my money system, uh, which uh, you can find on uh, YouTube, I have a 90-minute talk on uh, uh, dividend money, an alternative to central banking, uh, partial reserve, uh, fractional reserve banking money. Uh, we, the, one of the key things in it is to make sure the system has lots of velocity and lots of exchange mm. and lots of dynamism. Mm. Uh, you know, a money system where people just sit on their ass on top of their money, that's, you know, that's sick, actually. And that's really what Bitcoin is. Yeah. And that's, um, I mean, that's what we mentioned, I think, in the last show was I was talking about that uh, that we have this uh, increase paradigm as opposed to a growth paradigm. And that's exactly it. You know, it's it's having that velocity, um, you know, within the system of, of, of information value, you know, um, objects. Yeah, trade has to go like that, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what, 
<laughs> some sort of qualitative easing might look like instead of quantitative easing would be you know increasing the velocity of the dollar improving the health of your system yep and there's ways that if our velocity has been falling too it's been falling for a number of years that's mm. uh, one of the things i personally follow as part of my work on monetary economics yeah. uh, now let's turn from this beautiful view to the world we live in today yeah. uh, where i would say that so-called civilization is not doing a good job as a custodial species and until very recently didn't wasn't even aware of the fact that it had that role you know it's still rushing towards the cliff and at a breakneck breakneck speed and either will overpopulate the earth will deplete our soils will kill the uh, micro uh, species that live in the soils that make uh, you know plant life uh, viable or we'll cook ourselves or we'll uh, be so crowded together and, and dealing with each other in such corrupt ways that we'll have pandemic after pandemic. Uh, we don't seem to give a fuck about being the custodial species anymore, at least so-called civilization doesn't. Mm. There was, I, and I think, um, I think the, these things happen periodically. I think in, in human populations, particularly after a cataclysm of some kind, um, you know, people experiment with these unsustainable systems. There's a place I lived for a year in far north Queensland called Kuranda. And Kuranda is, um, it's, it's a new landscape. It's only like 10,000 years old because, you know, it was, there was a big volcanic cataclysm there. And it ended up uh, developing into a rainforest. And anyway, there's a really big story there. Um, and so it's not as old as most of the stories in Australia. It's a new one because it's a new landscape, you know. Um, That's a very interesting. Yeah. And it's this uh, this big um, rainbow serpent sort of uh, travels periodically down uh, down to the sea and then up onto the tableland along a waterway. Now that uh, the ocean there and that coast, um, there was this kind of rare spiral shell that the people there started using as a fungible token back then. So they were like using it as a, a currency, basically. So it was an experiment with money. Um, so they were, they were using that to, you know, to store value in their, in their trades. But there were all these problems because all of a sudden um, things weren't moving. There was no velocity there were people who were like gathering these shells in, in piles and just sort of keeping them, you know, <laughs> and it's, it slowed things down and, you know, people were getting sick and things were going wrong and there were lots of fights. And this story is the story of the first heist because that rainbow snake had come up out of the ocean and he'd have a lot of these shells stuck in his scales. And so he was ambushed by these blackbird people, you know, going up the hill and they dropped a log on him and murdered him right there. Now, um, the rainbow snake, he's a, a really big, one of those big creator beings, you know, in our worldview. One of the ones I was mentioning before, one of the really big, really important creator beings is really central to most Aboriginal cultures all over Australia. So it was a terrible thing that they'd murdered uh, him. And, uh, I, and after that, people decided to abandon that, that currency and that, that system because it was just, um, you know, it was obviously going to destroy everything. And the warning of that story is that, you know, you'll destroy creation itself if you're doing that, if you're not sharing freely and having constant uh, movement in whatever trading system you have. Yeah, you have to have the dynamism there. It's got to, you know, yeah. and it has to work for everybody, right? What the, why is that so hard? Why is civilization not able to understand that? It's a very interesting question. Yeah. And, and, and you actually propose a reason, and I'm going to quote, uh, uh, well, actually, Let's, not, let's wait till a little later for that one, because here's one that I loved you to explicate for me as I was going through the book again uh, for, for today's talk. I said, this is interesting, but I'm not, a, not sure I understand it. Let me ask the man himself. Uh, you say, we are the custodians of this reality, and the arrow of time is not an appropriate model for a custodial species to operate from. What do you mean by that? Damn interesting words, but I'm not quite sure what it means. <laughs> I will, <laughs> that was behind uh, a lot of the sort of just little thought experiments I've been doing um, with the first and second laws of thermodynamics and the idea that, that maybe the, the second law 
is is not the most appropriate model of time, um, <laughs> not the most productive one. And um, you know, maybe a, a better one if we're looking at um, a whole heap of vast, complex, you know, overlapping, interacting, dynamic systems. That maybe the first law of thermodynamics um, might be worth looking at as a as an alternative model of time, because I, I guess the the arrow of time, you know, as it's been created, is um is very much came come out of uh, print based cultures, you know, they developed uh, developed print in order to try and control the story of the past. You know, so they, they have printed history and say, well, this is the version of your history and we're showing progress here because things were really bad and dark and terrible in the past and now they're better and every day is better. Therefore, tomorrow will be better, you know. Um, and so then, you know, they write contracts to try and control the future as well and they end up, you know, making these civilizations fit onto that uh, that that arrow of time and, and therefore that illusion of uh, progress. And, you know, I think that that illusion of progress and that, um, that sort of wrong story uh, of progress, that, that uh, big lie, um, I, I think that's, um, that's the cause of a lot of our destruction. We're, I mean, we're all trapped on this arrow of time and just speeding towards the precipice, you know? Exactly. This is such game A heading for the cliff. You know, I think it's... That's a, a simple explanation of it. I, I kind of go into it a bit more in the book, you know? Some of the ideas, and then later I found out that Charles Darwin had the same idea when he was messing around with physics. And of course, you know, physicists, you know, hardcore physicists, uh, many of them, not all, but I would say a majority at this time, believe time is an illusion, actually, uh, and that there may not actually be any time, and that maybe everything happens simultaneously, and uh, time is something that we impose upon the structure of the universe. Isn't that a weird thought? Right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I know a lot of um, a lot of our, like really, really senior um, law people, clever people, we call them. Um, the way they <laughs> the way they talk and interact with the world is is definitely on a completely different model of time. Right? There's a scholar called um, Christine Black, and she wrote a book about indigenous jurisprudence called "The Land Is the Source of the Law." She was telling me the other day that. She's come to the conclusion that um, that those old people uh, live in a, a state of quantum, was how she put it. <laughs> Where they could hop around between, you know, with aren't you know aren't what's called uh, non-localism yeah. again, something that physics shows actually does exist. In fact, I would say most all physicists believe that this universe is non-local, meaning that uh, things can go from A to B without being anywhere in between. Mm. Well, uh, old man Juma, in the, who I talk about in the book a lot, um, tell his story, and he's got, um, uh, I think about, yeah, half a dozen of the symbols in the book are his Santok symbols that he wanted to share with the world. And when he first showed me those, it was more than just those. There were about, there must have been two or three hundred symbols he showed me all in one day. Um, it nearly made my head burst. But he, um, he, he was blowing my mind and I, he kept saying things that, you know, like he knew all about my life somehow, you know, and, but, and he was referring to things, future events as they were happening now. And so, and he said, ah, oh, that place where you're going tomorrow, like I, he didn't know where I was going. I was actually flying out from, I was in the Northern Territory there and I was going to be flying all the way down to the bottom of Australia to the snowy mountains. And um, I was going to be right up on the top, that snowy mountain there, uh, near the snowy river. You know, he didn't know that. He didn't know I was flying out and going there the next day. Um, but I hadn't told him anyway. And he said, oh, that place you're going tomorrow, you need to listen to this uh, Yothi Indi song because there's a song line in there and you'll find that song line. Um, so that's it's called uh, Timeless Land, that song. You need to listen to that. And then you need to follow that, uh, that song line all, all the way down to the ocean and you need to draw these symbols in the sand there and draw it right up on the beach there and a, and the big wave will come up and, and, and wash that out to the sea. And then I was laughing at him and I went, are you, <laughs> you, like I thought he was a charlatan, you know, 
because uh, Yothi Indies are a band from um, uh, the Northern Territory. And I was like, ah, what he doesn't know is that I'm going to be flying down to the bottom of the continent tomorrow. He, he doesn't know where I'm going to be. And so I just dismissed it and I thought, oh, he's a silly, silly person. And, yeah, so I was up on that mountain and I was just, I was talking to a, a lawman there, like a senior lawman, you know, initiated into the bigger knowledge and all that. And he said, well, when those old people, you've got to do what they say. And I said, yeah, but I'm not in the Northern Territory. And he went, well, just listen to the song anyway. So we got it up on YouTube <laughs> there and listened to it. And it was, um, and the, the early, right towards the start of the song, the f- lyrics are, um, uh, from the edge of the mountain, down through the valley, down where the snowy river flows, follow the water down to the ocean, bring back the memory. Um, <laughs> oh, dear, yeah. he had you. <laughs> he had me. So it turns out that those uh, Yulunga people from right up north in Australia had visited that place and sat down with the old people there, and they knew that song line, and they'd written it into one of their songs. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah. And he always talking about future things in present tense or even sometimes past tense, like they've already happened, you know, like he's narrating something he's already seen. And and I've never seen that that old man sleep. You know, I've camped with him that many times, never once seen him go to sleep. He's just always there in the same spot in the morning, fully clothed. Looks like he hasn't. <laughs> I've never seen him go to the toilet. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with him. It's... um. It's terrifying sometimes. Yeah. Sounds like Gandalf the Wizard yeah, in yeah, Lord of the Rings, yeah. right? He never sleeps. And as, as you, now that you mention it, that I can't hear the, him ever saying he took a shit either. So. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's it. So, uh, you know, Interesting. I mean, that's just, that's campfire sort of stories to scare small children with, I guess. But, um, you know, it's an interesting thought, the, the possibility that, um, you know, our minds can uh, can exist, you know, out of linear time in that way. Another thought about just had about time stimulated by this conversation, which is, uh, you know, kind of multifaceted, which is, uh, game a, our, our status quo world has distorted time in a, an extraordinarily dangerous way. Uh, you know, you've, if you listen to my show, you've heard me talk about that the inner engine of game A is the quest for short-term money-on-money money return. Mm. And how is money-on-money money return denominated? By interest rates. And what is the thing about interest rates? They're exponential, which means that if it's 10% interest, the principal keeps growing exponentially over time. And if you turn that around into a so-called discount rate and say, what is uh, $100 worth in 100 years? The answer is almost zero if you assume a 10% uh, interest rate. And so uh, time... Uh, in game A, in financial terms, in a world driven by money on uh, money return, causes the future to essentially disappear, so nobody cares about it. Yeah, and that is that is why we are not able to uh, uh, do our duty as a custodial species, as if you're if you are operating under the inner engine of money on money return, which by its de- very definition, when it's uh, based on debt money, uh, has an exponential discounting of the future, such as such that the ec- economic measure of the future is essentially zero. It's the snake eating its tail. Yeah, exactly. You know that um, that that um, foundational myth of civilization. The Ouroboros. The worm Ouroboros. They always have that right? symbol there. It always terrifies me because they call it a symbol of infinity. But how's that infinity? He's just going to eat himself till he's just ahead. You notice also a zero, right? Yeah, that's it. No, it's um, yeah. it's a zero sum game, I guess. Yeah, though it doesn't have to be, especially if we uh, re- and remember that distinction between increase and growth, or I would sometimes call it the the growth into the microcosm versus the growth into the macrocosm. Yeah. Right. It doesn't hurt the earth to be ever more intricate. Uh, let's say, let's think of engraving. Our engravings become more intricate. We don't consume more wood when we do that, yeah. but we add a lot more value to the world, right? That's a, that's a really good metaphor. 
Yeah, I think that's 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 what I think that's what I think of as increase and growth is. Oh, I I'm going to do kind of shitty engravings, yeah. but I'm going to do a whole bunch of them, yeah. right? Uh, versus one very intricate, very beautiful, very integrated engraving. Mm. And if we can change our mindset towards richness in terms of detail and connection and dynamics, and away from piling up shit, yeah. right? Uh, you know. The idea that, you know, you know, the worst idea in game A is he who dies with the most toys wins, yeah. right? There's, there's, a, there's a caution, though. Like, I mean, you really, really do have to know your stuff, you know, because of that, um, that sort of, you know, butterfly effect of tinkering with um, complex systems, you know. Uh, you do an intervention over here and, and you know, you c- it's very difficult to predict or anticipate, you know, which way that's going to go. You do some good over here and something bad happens over there. Um, over that place I was talking about before, you know, at Coranda, um, when I was traveling up to there, I was traveling from right down, right down in the south. Um, see, Coranda is the, the end of one of those big song lines um, for that platypus story. And I was down at the start of that story at a place called Narron Lake in Western New South Wales, and and that story starts with a a, a water rat and a and a duck doing the wrong thing and mating when they shouldn't be mating, <laughs> you know. Um, God damn it! I hate when that happens. That's interesting because you know, <laughs> scientists have found both water rat and duck DNA in the platypus. How, how the hell does that happen? Anyway, so um. Yeah, I was following that song line, but then this um, this old lady, this law woman, clever woman, uh, called me up. And you have to do what they say when they tell you. It's it's really hard. I mean, you don't have to. I mean, you can dodge them if you want, but it, <laughs> you won't get asked to do anything else, and you won't. They won't share anything with you again. So I um, had to do what she said. Now there'd been a big flood in Brisbane, in um, southern Queensland there, and. And uh, a huge flood. All the city was flooded. This was about 10 years ago. And all the old people, the old Aboriginal people in, in the Brisbane area were having respiratory problems um, there. And they were attributing it to a, um, a disturbance in spirit in a place in the mangroves. And, um, yeah, the, the fruit bat is a really important medicine for that respiratory Problems. So this old lady had identified that as a disturbance in a fruit bat place. And so she sent me there and it's at a place called Hendra. And so I was standing in the mangrove swamp and looking across the highway and there was a horse stud there. And then all the penny dropped for me because um, um, there's a thing in Australia called the Hendra virus. And the Hendra virus uh, was something that's, that um, started in horses and spread from the horses to the fruit bat. And I realized that I was a ground zero for that spreading of that virus. And it's like rabies. The fruit bats go go nuts and then they bite people and then the people get that virus, you know. Um, So they'd kind of had it contained there, apparently. Um, Anyway, so I'm there at at that site, ground zero for the Hendra virus. And so I I did the the ritual things and called out the words that the old lady had given me and – and all these fruit bats that were roosting, and this is thousands roosting in the mangroves, they'll just burst up into the air and they started their migration north early, too early in the season, you know. And the idea was that they'd take that bad spirit away with them. Anyway, that sounds like a nice intervention. All the old people, you know, I, I don't know I heard the story that they were all getting better and the respiratory problems had passed. And so I kept driving north because I was on my way up to the end of that song line there up in Karanda. Uh, so it's a, about a 3,000-kilometer journey all up. Um, so I drove all the way up there and took my time. And then, you know, so I camped there and I was having breakfast one morning and I heard on the radio that there'd been an outbreak of Hendra virus in Karanda, where I was, <laughs> you know. And it had never spread that far north before, but... Um, you know, so I, I kind of I saw that, you know, there was this custodial role sort of manipulating the system somehow, um, you know, for good. But then, you know, it had big knock-on effects that spread right across the continent. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm really careful. <laughs> I try to be careful um, 
with everything that I do now, you know, if, if I'm taking on custodial roles, you know, um, in any system. And of course, that's one of the things we do learn in uh, complexity science and in our game B work. I make this point again and again and again. The ability to predict the unfolding of a complex system when you tinker with it is quite limited, right? And so uh, one must proceed empirically and experimentally, I would argue, yeah. at least. You know, make, make probe changes, see what happens, wait a bit, make another change. Oops, that one didn't work out so well. Try something else. Uh, and, you know, that's the danger of ideology, mm. right? When people come with this book that says you must do all of these things, every one, every jot and tittle, yeah. uh, you can almost be sure that they're wrong. And unfortunately, if they, you know, think of Marxist-Leninism as an example of that, right? Uh, or some of this new postmodernist uh, crazy shit, right? If you, you know, followed all their prescriptions, you could well uh, really put civilization uh, far off its uh, reasonable track, uh, you know, with very little ability to recover by following uh, some uh, ideological or utopian vision too far without taking a, a, you know, a live experimental and reaction, you know, action, reaction, adjust uh, approach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, th I think a lot of... You know, we, we have all these plans, you know, people are always asking, what's your vision of the future, all these kinds of things. And we're supposed to like design the future, you know, based on a very limited, you know, map of what we can see. And I think um, a, a lot of times it, it's, it's got to be a bit more dynamic than that. You know, you have to allow for emergence. You, you have to um, basically, you know, be a caretaker of all the conditions in the system uh, that will produce the emergence of, um, of you know, solutions and, and, and changes in the system. Um, and, and that's all you can do. You know, I think if you... Like a, more like a gardener, right? Yeah, that's just it. Exactly. Well, that's a good transition point to my next quote from the book. Uh, this is Tyson again. I made a pointed parrying shield out of Thanchal wood while thinking about all this to represent the protection needed while navigating the space between the tangible and intangible worlds that custodial species must engage with. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I can um, often I'll use the metaphor of theory and practice to talk about those um, tangible and intangible worlds. You know, so you have to engage with that uh, world of um, abstract knowledge. Um, and I guess that's almost a, a place where you can do safe to fail experiments. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, before you, you, you do something, you, you've got to. Um, so I, I talk about it in terms of that metaphor is the language of spirit. So you're translating, you know, tangible uh, phenomena and, um, you know, things. Uh, situations you t you're translating those into into a, uh, an abstract metaphor, and then you're manipulating those in abstract space, you know, and then you complete that that feedback loop there between those two worlds by bringing them back into this world, and that's pretty much how ceremony and ritual works, you know. And if you think about it, that's what mathematics is. Mathematics is is translating, you know, tangible. Uh, systems into uh, intangible symbols and metaphors and, um, you know, manipulating those in that abstract space and then, you know, finding solutions that you can bring back across into the real world. Yeah, particularly, certainly in mathematical physics, that's the case. Maybe less so in abstract mathematics, where some of those guys just pride themselves in living in the intangible. Oh, this doesn't have any application. Yeah. Why the hell would I think about that? Well, that's right? the problem. You have but, to yes, complete sir. that loop. You have to complete the yeah. loop between the tangible and intangible. Otherwise, you know, yeah, I mean, I talk about the problems that that can create, you know, uh, in the mind um, and that a lot of education is set up like that, you know, to just be sitting in the in the practical space or just be sitting in the the theoretical and never the twain shall meet. And you're, um, yeah, that's, and it seems like close to the idea of wisdom mm -hmm. is that dance between the two, yeah. right? Well, real learning is, a, is an act of creation. Yeah. It's, so we talk about, so we talk about that in terms of that being, so the word we'd use for that today is turnaround. So a turnaround event is, is that act of creation. And that's like an interaction between those two worlds. 
and there has to be a feedback loop loop happening between that world of spirit or abstract and um, you know tangible you know physical reality and that needs to be uh, kept constantly in motion so in learning that's like this miniature creation event that happens you know in your neural processes uh, when you're closing that loop and it really sparks joy but um, you know uh, the opposite happens if you're just sitting in one or the other it's you end up with boredom and boredom pretty much is it causes brain damage. It's a terrible thing. Yeah, it's one thing I can say. I haven't I don't know if I've ever been bored in my life. I always find some shit to get into, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and, but when I, you went to school you were still able to carry knives around <laughs> on your belt. It was a different exactly different world, Jim. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, unfortunately. And that brings us to our final topic uh, before we wrap up here. Uh, This is, again, another quote on this right on target, uh, carrying knives on your belt. What would it mean to reverse this domesticated state? You talked about how humans had become self-domesticated, over-domesticated, particularly in the advanced, so-called advanced world. Let's use so-called. It would take centuries to transition from human domestication and recover our exceptional physical and mental powers as a custodial species. Mm. Let's talk about this over-domestication, God damn it. And what are some of the things that we as individuals and societies ought to do to get ourselves back to having the physical and mental powers to be a responsible custodial species? Uh, you know, a minor top, a small I, little topic. I used to think I had the answer to that, but I'm, I'm, I'm just finding over the last couple of years, I'm just becoming increasingly domesticated myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it's a hard one, but it's, it's about, um, it's about being embedded in a habitat, you know, whatever your habitat is, you know, having your awareness um, on all of the interrelated things in that habitat, you know, as much as possible, you know, like paying attention, knowing what the weather's doing and the patterns that you're seeing in the weather, seeing that, you know, when this, the, when this tree is flowering, these things always ha- also happen, you know, in that season. Uh, going around around, even if you're living in a city, you know, uh, looking at what the pigeons are doing, you know, the the hawks and eagles that are nesting up in uh, skyscrapers, you know, when when are they nesting? When are they mating? All, all those kinds of things. But then also, you know, uh, but bringing that out into, I think the example I use in the 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 book is that you know when the tea tree is flowering i know i can get um, lychees and cherries at the supermarket <laughs> you know so um it's it's finding all those connections and extending your awareness out and actually trying to interact you know naturally as a node in that complex dynamic system you know um as much as possible um you know, and, and follow those principles of interaction we were talking about before where you uh, you have that velocity happening in your exchange of uh, information and energy and resources, you know, um, that you have these happening in dynamic relation with, with the communities that you're in, human and non-human communities. Um, and I guess if you're living like that and being like that, then your 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 consciousness is changing. Your, your mind is, is sort of... Um, um, it, it's involved in this active increase. And I guess that's that's the best we can do for now. Um, but try and keep some memory alive. Try and, and, and notice the illusions that are around you and mark those things as illusions and um, try and keep yourself behaving in some way that you can retain some kind of memory of what it is to be human when all of this uh, comes down because it is coming down you know, this civilization is collapsing. And, um, and when it does, you're going to want to be able to move with um, the habitat and the communities and the, the massive changes that are happening. You're going to need to be able to adapt and um, uh, if you want to thrive. And, and that's, a, that's about it at this stage. Um, that's about all that most of us can do. Yeah, and, and some of us have the opportunity to 
at least try to maintain our connections to our roots. As you know, I continue to hunt and butcher my own deer. And uh, in a pinch, I could butcher a cow if I had to, yeah, right? Yeah. Probably not not as good as a professional butcher, but I can do it. I uh, can grow my own food. My wife better than me by far. She's a master gardener. Mm. Uh, you know, play with the soil if you have the opportunity. Uh, you know, as you say, notice the world because the world is going to strike back. Mother Nature bats last, yeah, right? That's it. <laughs> I have a, a stepdaughter. She's like just thirteen years old, and you know, um, yeah, we, I made her a, a blowgun. You know, out of a piece of um, PVC pipe and. And um and some nails, you know. So we made all these blow darts, and um, and so she could practice with those. And it was a deadly shot. And we're talking about it in terms of, you know, urban foraging. If it comes to that, you know, um, because you know all these run on the supermarkets that happen when we're in lockdown, you know, with coronavirus yeah, and yeah. that sort of thing. It's like well, we might not be able to get meat one week. So you're going to have to go out and knock some of these pigeons or some of the possums that are running around uh, <laughs> with your blowgun. And, uh, yeah, so we'll have meat. Um, yeah, and it's uh, we're just about to move on to knife throwing next. That's the, <laughs> that's the next skill she's going to pick up. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I was I became obsessed with knife throwing when I was about twelve, yeah. and uh, bought a set of knife uh, throwing knives. Got pretty good at it actually. It's, it was a lot of fun because yeah. you know you have to uh, learn how to get the rotations just right and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, qu- quite cool. I would uh, you know commend you to teach your daughter that excellent yeah. skill. And then all the women and girls in my house have um, you know traditional Aboriginal women's fighting sticks uh, that I've made for them, and so uh, there's been a big. Sp- like in home invasions in uh, in Melbourne recently with all the lockdowns and all that sort of thing with the coronavirus. So, uh, but we feel pretty safe here. I'm, I'm pretty sure my women will be able to protect me. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? <laughs> That's a very good thing. Well, uh, Tyson, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, you know, I think this, as always, has been an exceedingly interesting conversation. And all you people out there, go read Sand Talk by Tyson Yunkaporta, or I'll kick your ass. <laughs> it's been fun. <laughs> and we managed to get through the whole thing without sexually assaulting any megafauna in a thought experiment, which... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, uh, no gonna, butt-fucking of the mammoth. <laughs> I'm never going to live that down. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not, I'm not Tyson right. the author anymore, or, or Tyson the thinker. It's, you know, you fuck one mammoth, and, and that's it. You're done. Yeah, you're a mammoth fucker forever. <laughs> Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.